Hello, Livingstone Church. I wish I could see you all face to face today, but I want to encourage you to continue intentionally engaging in Lord's Day worship even when we can't be together. I know it's harder to engage in the same way when you're at home, sitting on your couch or around the dining room table, but taking time on this day to engage our hearts and minds in the worship of God and to listen attentively to his word is still essential for us. We have just a couple of announcements for this week. First, we will have our weekly video calls again this week, including community group video calls for those community groups who are still meeting that way. And if you haven't yet uh, joined us for a Monday evening check-in at 7.30 or for Wednesday morning prayer at 8 or haven't joined in a while, I would encourage you to consider hopping on one of those calls, though I know that Zoom fatigue is a real thing. Second, I just want to remind everybody to continue praying for Tom and Debbie Verhovnik as they are still recovering from coronavirus at home. We come to the Lord in worship because he calls us to himself. Let's read together our call to worship from Psalm 27 verses 1 through 9. You will follow along with the people section of the reading. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When evildoers assail me to eat up my flesh, my adversaries and foes, it is they who stumble and fall. Though an army encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. Though war arise against me, yet I will be confident. One thing have I asked of the Lord, that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. For he will hide me in his shelter in the day of trouble. He will conceal me under the cover of his tent. He will lift me high upon a rock. And now my head shall be lifted up above my enemies all around me. And I will offer in his tent sacrifices with shouts of joy. I will sing and make melody to the Lord. Hear, O Lord, when I cry aloud. Be gracious to me and answer me. You have said, Seek my face. My heart says to you, Your face, Lord, do I seek. Hide not your face from me. Turn not your servant away in anger. O you have been, who have been my help, cast me not off. Forsake me not, O God of my salvation. Let's pray. Father, you are our light, our salvation, and our stronghold. Therefore, we do not need to fear whatever may come against us. We long to be in your house, Lord, to be your gathered people for worship. Help us as we are worshiping individually and as families to sing and make melody to you, to cry to you, and to seek your face. Meet with us in your word to feed and encourage us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.
For us to see the greatness of the grace of God, we must acknowledge our sin to him with sorrow and turn from it to Christ. So let's confess our sins as we sing Psalm 51.
assurance that we have when we turn to God in repentance and in faith from Isaiah 43 1 through 3 but now thus says the Lord he who created you O Jacob he who formed you O Israel fear not for I have redeemed you I have called you by name you are mine when you pass through the waters I will be with you and through the rivers they shall not overwhelm you when you walk through fire you shall not be burned and the flame shall not consume you. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. Let's sing together a song from our new songbook, Christ the Sure and Steady Anchor. Christ the Sure and Steady Stay. 
Today we have a message for all the children. Hey kids, I hope you've been enjoying the beautiful weather that God's been giving us this spring. Miss Lexi and I have been spending a lot of time outside working on our garden. We love growing our own food. We grow tomatoes, potatoes, onions, cabbage, beans, and we even grow popcorn, which is a lot of fun. We've been working on our garden for over two weeks already and we haven't even planted any of our plants. Do you know why? We haven't planted any of our plants yet because we need to prepare the soil in our garden so that the plants will grow. We have to pull out weeds and till up the dirt and add fertilizer to the soil, which is kind of like giving the plants food to eat. And if we don't prepare our garden well, the plants won't grow well and they won't give us all the tasty veggies that we want to eat. Last week, Pastor Josh preached from Luke 7 about God's word taking root, like a plant takes root, uh, taking root and growing in good soil. And we confessed from the catechism last week that we need to prepare ourselves to listen to God's word. So if we want to listen to the Bible and to listen to someone preach the Bible, We need to prepare our hearts. It's like preparing the garden so that the plants will grow. I know it's hard to pay attention and to learn from a sermon sometimes, and especially now when you're at home, but it might help to prepare yourself. And you can do that in a lot of different ways. First, you can pray that God would help you. You can also make sure that you don't have things around you that might distract you, like toys. You can sit down and make sure that you're ready to listen, and there's probably a lot of other things that you can do, and your parents can probably even help you to know how to prepare to listen to the sermon well. When Pastor Josh reads the Bible and preaches, remember that it's really important and that God is speaking to you. So make sure that you prepare and that you listen as well as you can, even when it's hard. Let me pray for you. Father, thank you for the children that are part of our church. Help them to prepare their hearts to listen to the sermon, like how a gardener prepares the soil in their garden. Help them to not be distracted and to see how amazing it is that the God of the world speaks to them in his word. May your word take root in them and grow up into a mature and healthy faith that produces good fruit for you. In Jesus' name, amen.
Greetings, Livingstone Church. This is Pastor Josh. Privileged to be able to bring God's Word to you today. If you turn to Luke chapter 8, we'll be in Luke 8, 22 to 56. Let me pray before we dive in. Lord, thank you that you speak to your people. We thank you that we can come to your word to hear from you, to hear a sure word, to hear an unchanging word. Lord, we ask that you would give us ears to hear, that as we see the love and care that you have for us today in this passage, Lord, that we would be changed, that we would be renewed, that we would be motivated by your word to follow you and live our lives for you and for your glory. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, several years ago, my stepdad and I went fishing on a lake near Madison. There was rain in the forecast that afternoon, so we brought along our rain gear just in case. And if you have ever been out on a boat when a storm rolls in, you know how quickly things can change. I remember my stepdad suggesting that we put our rain gear on, and then he, being the very experienced fisherman and boat captain, said, I think we'd better head in. And though he never said, I'm afraid, there was a realization on my part, as the less experienced one, that the situation was serious and that a healthy fear of what could quickly be upon us was quite proper. I knew in the seriousness of his tone that we were going to be in trouble if we didn't get off the lake quickly. Thankfully, we made it back to shore, although we were pounded by the rain, and the waves were like nothing I had ever experienced before or since. Although a tiny storm on a little lake in Wisconsin doesn't quite compare I think about news coverage I've seen of hurricanes hurtling towards the coast as some people hunker down and board up their windows while others flee inland and hope and pray for the best. Fear is an interesting emotion. It is something that seems to always be present, whether lurking in the background of our lives, just waiting to pounce, or clawing and gnawing at us in the foreground as we try to get a grip on what seems to be spiraling out of control in our lives. Fear is something that we all face, something that we cannot escape from. It manifests itself in myriad ways and is a complex emotion that can be influenced by both external and internal circumstances. We are certainly facing a level of fear on a global scale that has not been felt in a long time. Many people are scared. There are questions about what the future holds for us and for the coming generations. Perhaps you are not afraid of contracting the coronavirus, but you are scared about job security. Or you're anxious about relatives and friends who are unable to get routine health care needs met right now. Of all these things, they all expose our fear of the unknown, of not being in control, of not knowing what the coming days might look like. We may be asking questions right now like, what is God up to in all of this? Does he even care about what I'm going through? 
Is he powerful enough to stop this virus? Is it okay to even ask these questions? Do I not have enough faith? The good news is that I'm not going to pretend to answer these questions for you with some cheesy platitudes like, God is good all the time, or you just got to trust him. Because while those things might be true, it's not always that simple. Being a Christian and following Jesus does not mean that all of life's problems suddenly go away. In fact, I would argue that being a Christian only brings these questions more to the forefront. And I believe that it is God himself who draws these questions out of us. How does he do that? I would argue that he does that through his revealed word to us in the scripture. I've been encouraging people to dig into the Psalms during this time. And we've been singing and reciting the Psalms in our services a lot lately. Consider our call to worship from Psalm 27. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? This resounding note of victory and confidence from David should make our souls sing as we ask those same questions. Whom shall I fear? Of whom shall I be afraid? And the answer is nothing. But the reality of the life of faith is that we don't walk in that confidence 24-7-365. And I'm not sure that we are expected to. Is David, who spoke with such confidence in Psalm 27, not also the one who asked some deeply distressing questions? Psalm 13, 1 and 2. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? Or Psalm 22, 1. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Today in our scripture passage, we are going to look at four different accounts where fear is the dominating emotion, and these fears are contrasted with faith or belief. If you're taking notes, the main idea, which is on page three of your worship guide there, along with the outline, is that Jesus displays his power and care as he confronts our fears and calls us to faith in him. Jesus displays his power and care as he confronts our fears and calls us to faith in him. So brothers and sisters, let us hear and pay attention to God's holy and inspired word as we read Luke 8, 22-56. One day, he got into a boat with his disciples, and he said to them, Let us go across to the other side of the lake. So they set out, and as they sailed, he fell asleep. And a windstorm came down on the lake, and they were filling with water and were in danger. And they went and woke him, saying, Master, Master, we are perishing. And he awoke and rebuked the wind and the raging waves, and they ceased, and there was a calm. He said to them, 
Where is your faith? And they were afraid, and they marveled, saying to one another, Who then is this, that he commands even the winds and water, and they obey him? Then they sailed to the country of the Gerasenes, which is opposite Galilee. When Jesus had stepped out on land, there met him a man from the city who had demons. For a long time he had worn no clothes and had not lived in a house, but among the tombs. When he saw Jesus, he cried out and fell down before him and said with a loud voice, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I beg you, do not torment me. For he had commanded the unclean spirit to come out of the man. For many a time it had seized him. He was kept under guard and bound with chains and shackles. But he would break the bonds and be driven by the demon into the desert. Just then Jesus asked him, What is your name? And he said, Legion, for many demons had entered him. And they begged him not to command them to depart into the abyss. Now a large herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, and they begged him to let them enter these. So he gave them permission. Then the demons came out of the man and entered the pigs, and the herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake and drowned. When the herdsmen saw what had happened, they fled and told it in the city and in the country. Then people went out to see what had happened. And they came to Jesus and found the man from whom the demons had gone, sitting at the feet of Jesus, clothed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. And those who had seen it told them how the demon-possessed man had been healed. Then all the people of the surrounding country of the Gerasenes asked him to depart from them, for they were seized with great fear. So he got into the boat and returned. The man from whom the demons had gone begged that he might be with him. But Jesus sent him away, saying, Return to your home and declare how much God has done for you. And he went away, proclaiming throughout the whole city how much Jesus had done for him. Now when Jesus returned, the crowd welcomed him, for they were all waiting for him. And there came a man named Jairus, who was a ruler of the synagogue. And falling at Jesus' feet, he implored him to come to his house. For he had an only daughter, about twelve years of age, and she was dying. As Jesus went, the people pressed around him. And there was a woman who had had a discharge of blood for twelve years, and though she had spent all her living on physicians, she could not be healed by anyone. She came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment, and immediately her discharge of blood ceased. And Jesus said, Who was it that touched me? When all denied it, Peter said, Master, the crowds surround you and are pressing in on you. But Jesus said, Someone touched me, for I perceive that power has gone out from me. And when the woman saw that she was not hidden, she came trembling, and falling down before him, declared in the presence of all the people why she had touched him, and how she had been immediately healed. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. While he was still speaking, someone from the ruler's house came and said, Your daughter is dead. Do not trouble the teacher any more." But Jesus, on hearing this, answered him, do not fear, only believe and she will be well. And when he came to the house, he allowed no one to enter with him except Peter and John and James and the father and mother of the child. 
And all were weeping and mourning for her. But he said, Do not weep, for she is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him, knowing that she was dead. But taking her by the hand, he called, saying, Child, arise. And her spirit returned, and she got up at once, and directed that something should be given her to eat. And her parents were amazed, but he charged them to tell no one what had happened. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Again, if you're following along with the outline in the worship guide, you'll see the four accounts that we are going to look at today. Jesus alone has the power to calm the natural storms of destruction. Jesus alone has the power to calm the supernatural storms of demons. Jesus alone has the power to calm the ravaging storms of disease. And lastly, Jesus alone has the power to calm the destructive storms of death. First, Jesus alone has the power to calm the natural storms of destruction. This first account is a familiar one to anyone who has read the Gospels. Here are the disciples in a boat with Jesus because he has suggested that they sail across the Sea of Galilee. And suddenly a violent storm comes out of nowhere, which was very common given the unique geography of the sea and how it is situated in the mountains there. So here are these veteran fishermen who have no doubt battled a storm or two in their day, and their boat is starting to fill up, and it says they were in danger. Meanwhile, Jesus is fast asleep in the boat. The severity of their situation and the depth of their fear is revealed in their response. They say, Master, Master. Again, anytime we see that a title being used two times, it's used for emphasis. Master, Master, we are perishing. Notice they didn't say, Master, Master, we're going to be really wet. Or we might have to throw some things overboard. They try to warn Jesus that death is knocking at the door. The word they use here for perishing is the same word Jesus uses in Luke 17 when he compares the coming of the kingdom to the days of Noah when it says they were eating and drinking and marrying and being given in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. That word destroyed there is the same word for perishing here. So it is not looking good. In the parallel account in Mark 4, we even see the disciples level this accusation at Jesus. Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? Have you ever felt like Jesus is asleep while you're trying to captain your own sinking ship? Have you ever asked the question, maybe just in your heart or even out loud with a trusted friend? Does God really care about me? And if so, why am I experiencing this? Well, fear is a tricky emotion. It can certainly cause us to say or to feel things that expose where our hope and our trust are. If you've been around Livingstone Church very long, you know that I love recommending books. I was talking just yesterday on the phone with another pastor and was talking to him just after I had had started reading this book that came in the mail this week. 
And I mentioned to him how not being able to hold up a book in front of the congregation and read from it and recommend it to other people to read has been a really hard thing for me. It's one of those things that you don't realize how important it is until it is taken away from you. Now that might sound trivial, but that's just another part of our face-to-face interaction that I am longing for. Okay, so I know you're all dying to know. What's the book? It's called Untangling Emotions, and it was published last year by Crossway. It's co-authored by Alistair Groves, a counselor with CCEF, Christian Counseling and Educational Foundation. Uh, They have a lot of great resources for biblical counseling. Alistair Groves, and then Winston Smith, who is a pastor in Pennsylvania. Part one of the book deals with understanding emotions. Part two with engaging emotions. And then part three is called engaging the hardest emotions. And the first emotion that is dealt with in part three is fear. I read chapter one just to kind of get a feel for how the book was going to go. And then I skipped to chapter 13, which is the chapter on fear, in preparation for this message Because we see fear as the dominant emotion in all four of these accounts. Well, the first question that they address in the fear chapter is, what is fear, specifically dealing with what fear communicates? Here's what they write. Fear, whether mild uneasiness or abject terror, has a simple message. Something you value is under threat. Something bad might happen to something you care about. The future holds potential for loss. Because of this, and because fear is so common to us, your fears are probably the single best map of what you actually value. Fear points directly to what we treasure, whether health, wealth, acceptance, comfort, straight A's, or winning a game of tiddlywinks. They go on to describe that some types of fear and anxiety can be positive, like Paul's anxiety for the churches. He is concerned about them, and he feels deeply, and that's a good thing. Then the authors go on to say that whether our fear is godly like Paul's or not, we learn, they say, we learn a great deal about our true values and deepest commitments when we look at the constellation of our fears. Where fear flourishes, there your heart will be also. So where were the disciples' hearts here? Certainly they were afraid for their lives. So was it wrong for them to value their lives? No, I don't think so. But that doesn't mean that the associated fear was justified. We see this in Jesus' response. First, according to our pattern that we see in these accounts, Jesus displays his power and care with a simple rebuke of the wind and the waves. In Mark, Jesus says, Peace, be still. And we're told that they ceased and there was a calm. Don't miss this detail. The situation goes from completely perilous, like we're about to die out here, to a boat sitting on a glassy sea in a split second. Danger becomes calm. The disciples' fears of death are stilled along with the wind and the waves. And Jesus doesn't leave them alone. They wondered if he actually cared for them, 
And he shows them his care by asking this piercing question. Where is your faith? But notice their response. They don't say, oh yeah, we knew all along that you could do that, Jesus. We never doubted you for a second. No, it says they were afraid and they marveled. Their unhealthy fear of death was replaced by a healthy fear of the one in whose presence they now stood. The one of whom they asked, Who then is this that he commands even the winds and the water, and they obey him? And these were good Jewish boys. They knew their Old Testaments well. They knew the story of Yahweh displaying his power by destroying the earth with a flood. Of him parting the Red Sea so that their ancestors could flee Egypt and be delivered from slavery. They knew about the parting of the Jordan River. But they had never seen that type of power displayed before. Surely some of them wondered if those weren't just some tall tales like how we might react when we hear stories of Paul Bunyan and his great feats of strength. But now here they were, in the presence of the one who created the universe by the word of his power, and flooded the earth, and parted the Red Sea and the Jordan River, and who simply asks them, Where is your faith? Now I know what you might be thinking. Well, I've never seen something like this. Doesn't that excuse my fear and lack of faith? Does it? Were these things not written for us that we might believe? And if you're a Christian, has Jesus not calmed the storms of your life and brought peace where fear once reigned? That is the promise. It's not that all of your troubles will suddenly disappear. It's not that you'll never get the coronavirus or that your job will be secure or that all of your relationships will be happy all the time. Rather, it's that even if you get the coronavirus, even if you lose your job, even if your friendships or your marriage is hard, that Jesus is your source of hope and peace in the midst of life's storms. That he is with you and will never leave you or forsake you. He is the sure and steady anchor that we sang about earlier. I love that song. I would encourage you to go back and listen to it again. Go reread those lyrics. Preach those comforting truths to your soul about how Jesus is with you through life and death. That first verse pretty, fits pretty well with our passage. Christ, the sure and steady anchor, in the fury of the storm, when the winds of doubt blow through me and my sails have all been torn, in the suffering, in the sorrow, when my sinking hopes are few, I will hold fast to the anchor, it shall never be removed. Hold fast to him. If you are a Christian, he is and has been your only hope. If you are listening to this and you are not yet a Christian, I want to plead with you, turn to Jesus, repent of your sins and put your faith in him. He is the only anchor that will allow you to survive the storms of life.
And they're coming. And they will continue to come. But while we confess that Jesus alone has the power to calm the natural storms of destruction, and we might parallel those with external forces in our lives, the reality is that there are deeper and darker forces at work in our world that seek to harm and destroy us. Our second account shows that Jesus alone has the power to calm the supernatural storms of demons. After Jesus and his disciples survive the storm, they arrive on shore in a place across from the Sea of Galilee called the country of the Gerasenes. Where they're where there they are immediately met by a demon-possessed man. This man is in such a horrible condition that it is hard to imagine the scene. He is naked and homeless, and he takes shelter in tombs. It appears that he was so out of control and violent that others had tried to bind him with chains, probably to keep him from hurting other people. But the power of the demons were so strong that he would break the bonds and he would be driven out into the desert. When he sees Jesus approaching, he cries out and falls down and shouts, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I beg you, do not torment me. Jesus proceeds to have the demon identify itself, which it does with the name Legion, which was a military term used to describe a group of soldiers numbering 6,000 So the point here is that there is a tremendous demonic influence in this man's life, which is clear from how much he has suffered. Jesus then sends the demons into a herd of pigs, which rush over a steep bank and drown in the lake. The herdsmen, who are clearly afraid, flee and go and tell people in the city and in the country what had happened. Then people flock to Jesus and they see this man, who many had earlier either personally encountered or heard stories of. They see him sitting calmly with Jesus. Now he's finally got clothes on and he's in his right mind. He's no longer controlled by the demons. And what is their response? The end of verse 35. They were afraid. Do you see the parallels here between the calming of the storm and the calming of the demon-possessed man? There are several. First, the threat of death and destruction was very real in both cases. Second, Jesus simply speaks and commands the natural and the supernatural world to bow to him. Third, the results are immediate. The sea calmed in an instant, and this man who was tormented for years is suddenly healed and freed from his bondage to Satan. Finally, the result of the onlookers is fear. The disciples were chastised for their lack of faith. And Jesus doesn't address the crowd here. Their fear actually caused them to ask Jesus to depart. But notice the interaction with the man whom Jesus healed. He he wants to go with Jesus and follow him. But Jesus tells him to go back to his home and tell everyone how much God has done for him. And he does. He goes and proclaims throughout the whole city how much Jesus had done for him. Don't miss the confessions of this man, the two confessions of this man, and the stark contrast between them. 
First, he called Jesus the Son of the Most High God when they first met. This was a recognition of the demons of the true identity of Jesus, the Son of God. After he is healed and in his right mind, Jesus says, Go tell your family and friends how much God has done for you. And he goes and tells them how much Jesus had done for him. This isn't a veiled reference here to Jesus being God. This man who was once tormented under the influence of demons has now been liberated and healed by God in the flesh, and he lets everyone know about his radical conversion. Now, this is not the place for me to dive deeply into a theology of demon possession and whether I believe in modern-day exorcisms. But I will say that I believe this man represents all of those who are slaves to sin and Satan through their unbelief. The scriptures are very clear about this. Jesus is very clear about this. Go read his interaction with the Jews in John chapter 8, where he calls them children of the devil. This is not a popular opinion in our day. And I'm not suggesting that we just run around calling our non-Christian friends and family members children of the devil. But there is no middle ground here. Jesus doesn't allow it. The New Testament writers won't allow it. Listen to 1 John chapter 3, verse 10. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. This isn't hyperbole. We are confronted here with a choice between spiritual life or spiritual death. Between eternity with God and his people in the new heavens and the new earth, or eternity in hell with the devil and all of those who reject Jesus. If we examine our lives by what we see in these accounts, that Jesus displays his power and care as he confronts our fears and calls us to faith in him, then the question that we are confronted with is, is my faith in Jesus? Do I trust him alone to calm the storms of my life and my soul? And am I continuing to walk with him and take my fears to him so that he can lovingly and graciously confront my fears and point to a deeper trust in and reliance upon him? Don't believe that the Christian lie, don't believe the lie that the Christian life is just about getting saved and then we need to work really hard to be good Christians. It's all grace. We are saved by grace and we are kept by grace. We come into the door of the kingdom because God is merciful and we stay in the kingdom because he is merciful. And it doesn't mean that we never fear. It doesn't mean that we never doubt. But it means those fears and doubts no longer define us. What kind of father would I be if in the middle of the night one of my kids came to me, woke me up and said, Daddy, I'm scared of the dark. And instead of responding compassionately and reassuring them that I am there to protect them, and provide for them. 
What if I said, how dare you come and wake me up? Don't you realize that I'm the one who pays for you to have this roof over your head? And I pay the electricity bill so that you can have lights in your room? Go back in your room and turn on the lights and think twice before you wake me up again. That would be beyond ridiculous. We can trust our Father. We can run to Him. We can come before Him honestly with all of our fears and our doubts, and He will not cast us away. Let us rejoice and be glad for that. Well, the final account here is actually a combination of two incidents that overlap. We are going to see that Jesus alone has the power to calm the ravaging storms of disease, and Jesus alone has the power to calm the destructive storms of death. After Jesus and his disciples return from the country of the Gerasenes, where they had been asked to leave, Jesus is welcomed by the crowd that was waiting for him in verse 40. A man named Jairus then comes to him, and he implores Jesus to come to his house because his only daughter is dying. As they are going, the crowd is pressing in on Jesus, and a woman who has suffered for 12 long years, notice that Jairus' daughter is age 12, this woman has suffered for 12 years, If we read carefully, I don't think that this is an insignificant detail. We are led into a dilemma here as it appears that Jesus has to choose between the life of this 12-year-old girl or the healing of a woman who has suffered from a disease related to to blood loss for 12 years. Notice the woman has been to every doctor she could find and she has spent her life savings. She is hopeless and desperate. She has heard about this man, Jesus, who has healed people of leprosy and even raised a young man from the dead. I think we have to assume that she doesn't know that Jesus is on his way to see a young girl on her deathbed. But either way, her action interrupts Jesus' trip to Jairus' house as she approaches Jesus and touches his garment. Notice what it says in verse 44. Immediately her, her discharge of blood ceased. Just like the winds and the waves ceased with a word, and the tormenting of the demons was ended with a word. It is the same power of Jesus that healed this woman. And Jesus called out, who was it that touched me? Because he knew that power had gone out from him. And of course, Peter is the first one to speak up and remind Jesus that he is surrounded by a crowd of people. Who touched me? What kind of question is that? Well, the woman knows that she's busted. So she comes trembling and falls down before Jesus and she confesses what she had done and why. Notice Jesus' reply to her. He doesn't rebuke her. He doesn't say, how dare you touch me and make me unclean. He doesn't address what was perhaps a superstitious move of touching Jesus' clothes in order to be healed. Instead, he displays his power and his care for her by declaring that her faith has made her well and that she may go in peace. 
Her simple, childlike faith is commended and the ravaging storms of disease that have gripped her with fear for over a decade have now been stilled. But all is not right with the world because Jairus' daughter is still in need of a healing touch from Jesus. In fact, by this time, she has already died as the messenger from Jairus' house comes to announce. Notice what the messenger says. Don't trouble the teacher anymore. And I love what Luke tells us here in verse 50. But Jesus, on hearing this, answered him. Jesus isn't portrayed as some divine robot without emotions whose every word is pre-programmed. The messenger says, don't trouble the teacher anymore. And Jesus says, I have come that my troubled people might trouble me with their requests. In Matthew 9, 36, it says, When Jesus saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. That word for harassed there is the same word here for trouble. Jesus invites us to trouble him with our requests, to not cease asking and pleading for help and for deliverance. I wonder, during this global pandemic, when we are experiencing fear, anxiety, uncertainty, when there are many needs and concerns about our future, could we be accused of troubling the Lord too incessantly with our prayers? It's easy to pray before meals or to pray when we have our quiet time. But what would it look like constantly throughout the day to be bringing our requests to the Lord? To not stop until we have the type of assurance that Jesus gives to Jairus in the second half of verse 50. Do not fear Only believe, and she will be well. Now just to clarify, this isn't some type of easy believism or some name-it-and-claim-it theology. It doesn't work that way. We don't believe things into existence. We believe in Jesus. That's the fourth point there in the outline. Jesus alone has the power to calm the destructive storms of death. And it is Him we are called to believe in. Jesus commands here to Jairus, Do not fear and believe are both imperatives. These aren't suggestions. Jesus isn't saying, Jairus, I'm standing at the door of your heart and knocking. It's up to you if you want to open the door of your heart and let me in. It's not even what that verse means anyways. But this isn't some vague invitation by Jesus. He doesn't give vague invitations. He says, Jairus, I'm your daughter's only hope. And I'm your only hope. Don't be afraid of death. Trust me. Then he goes with them to the house. He goes in. He raises the little girl from the dead. And she sits up, and Jesus tells them to give her some food. He shows his care for her beyond 
what was essential, restoring her life, he also wants to make sure that she is nurtured and cared for her physical body as well. I think one of the most challenging lessons in in this account is the issue of Jesus' timing. Notice that he is not rattled when the woman interrupts him on his way to Jairus' house. His sense of urgency is not driven by the same things that drive our sense of urgency. He is not driven by fear or doubt or worry or unbelief. Those are things that we struggle with, that I struggle with. I can't tell you how many times I fret about something that seems so urgent. Like if this doesn't happen, if I don't exert my will in this situation and make something happen, the outcome is sure to be disastrous. But that's not faith. That's me trying to play God and that's me saying, my kingdom come and my will be done. And you do it too. We all do. I'm going to repeat the main idea one more time in case you missed it. Jesus displays his power and care as he confronts our fears and calls us to faith in him. His power over nature, his power over demons, his power over disease, and ultimately his power over death. Right here in the pages of scripture, so that we can put ourselves in the shoes of the disciples and let Jesus confront our fears, and in the shoes of this demon-possessed man so that we can know we've been set free, and in the shoes of this diseased woman so that we can know that Jesus alone can heal, and finally in the shoes of this 12-year-old girl, knowing that it is by faith in Jesus Christ and Him alone, that we can be raised from the dead. That in His death, He defeated death once and for all. That we might rise to new life. That we might no longer live in fear. And that we might follow Him and tell the world around us of all that Jesus has done for us. Let us pray. God, we thank you for your power and your care that are displayed here in these accounts. We thank you that you do confront our fears, that you do call us to faith in you. Lord, may we respond in faith. May we respond by trusting you more. May we respond by laying down our lives. May we respond by going and telling the world about all that you have done for us. Lord, knowing that it is not because of anything that we bring to the table. It's nothing that we bring in our hands. It's not our own works. It's not our own goodness, but it is all your mercy and grace. God, thank you for who you are. Thank you for your promises that are all true for us in Christ. Thank you that our hope is in him, that we have died with him, that we have been raised with him, and that we have the promise of eternal life in him. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.
take up thy rest Come with thy grace and heavenly aid To fill our hearts which thou hast made To fill our hearts which thou hast made O Comforter, to thee we cry Thou heavenly gift of God most high Thou fount of life and fire of love And sweet anointing from above And sweet anointing from above Be not afraid that from the Spirit. 